Hi, Clutter Fairy fans. Welcome to a bonus edition of the Clutter Fairy Weekly for July 6th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Ed Gumnick, and I'm speaking with Gail Goddard, certified professional organizer and owner of the Clutter Fairy in Houston, Texas. Hi, everybody. The Clutter Fairy Weekly is a webcast and podcast where we dig deep into the clutter that stands between people and the lives they want to be living. We aim to make sense of where so much stuff comes from in the first place, and we offer strategies to slow down the accumulation, reduce the collection, and comfortably manage the stuff we choose to keep. We rely heavily on the questions and topic suggestions we get from you, our viewers and listeners. And that's why, even though we're taking the week off from our live webcast, we put together a bonus edition of the Clutter Fairy Weekly to respond to comments and questions from viewers and listeners. Yes, we have. In response to your feedback, we're going to dig into a few short topics, including clutter negotiations, email bankruptcy, and catch and release shopping trips. We're calling today's show, Talking Back to the Cloud, comments and questions from our audience. And we're going to start by talking about why Gail doesn't need to spy on you. <laughs> right? <laughs> This one came to us from a, a YouTube viewer who goes by the handle, the cold glass of water show. We'll, we'll call this cold glass. Cold glass says, Gail, you are calling me out so hard right now. How did you get in my house? I heard that one once or twice before, I have to say. And just in case anyone watching is worried, I don't use magic or clairvoyance and I'm not sending private investigators to spy on you. But I've seen a few things in the 15 years of organizing professionally. And what I'm reminded of over and over again is this. A lot of people wrestle with the same issues. It doesn't really matter what the story is or the circumstances are that led up to having clutter built up in your house. It all boils down to the same basic issues. At some point, clutter is overwhelming to nearly everyone. If we ignore it, or refuse to learn some management skills for clutter, we negatively impact our own quality of life. Even small improvements can provide relief. And we all have different skill sets related to clutter management. Some of us have none, some of us have some, and some of us are obsessive about it. So regardless of your skills in this area, we can all learn something new about organization. And whenever this question comes up, are you talking about me? Are you stalking me? <laughs> I like to take it as an opportunity to remind the person that you're not alone. If a clutter situation I'm describing sounds familiar to you, it's because you're not alone in this struggle. And whoever story that I'm telling and talking about how they were able to adjust or make um, improvements or get through the situation or solve the problem, you can do that too. And that's why we share those stories about my clients and why other people that watch the show pop in and tell their own stories to remind you that you're not alone and that you can learn and things can be shifted and made different for you. And we're not spying on you. And we're we not promise. spying on you. Uh, you know, you think 15 years wouldn't be enough, but truly I've probably seen it all at this point. Like there's not a lot, there's nothing that surprises me anymore. Let me just say that you, it's really hard to surprise me. Every once in a while I go in and it's so bad or it's so dense or it's so dirty that I sort of go and seize up a little bit at trying to face this and get started on it. But after that moment's hesitation, I jump in and we start doing something. So even if you make me pause for a second, it won't stop me from doing the work. So <laughs> you can't really surprise me anymore. 
Okay, our next comment comes from Ernest on YouTube. Ernest wrote, after spending two weekends sorting through 45,000 emails collected over seven years, I just declared email bankruptcy and deleted everything. If there are open, important issues, they will resurface anyway. What do you think about that approach, Gail? That just makes my head explode. The idea of deleting everything in one hit the delete button, erase. Doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Wouldn't that bother you? It's a little scary, but I also <laughs> sort of see his point. He's you know? being very brave about it. I think, yeah. wow, right? Yeah. Um, so the one thing that comes up from this conversation is the idea of allowing sufficient time for projects. It's really easy to underestimate the time it's going to take to declutter. And we tend to downplay the reality that stuff that's been piling up for weeks or months or years, we imagine that we'll be able to whip it into shape in 10 minutes here or there. But as Ernest experienced, he spent two weekends trying to declutter his email and then realized that I've already spent two weekends and I can't take it. So it can take a big chunk of time to catch up on a seriously delinquent decluttering project, whether that's physical stuff or emails. His email bankruptcy idea was the ultimate decision to purge all the old email. And that may seem like a radical approach, but he makes an important point about the, any important communications that they may, anything that's unresolved will probably come up again. And if they don't hear from you from your email, then they may follow up with a actual letter or they'll follow up with a phone call. So those people or organizations that are trying to get a hold of you will try again in a different form or they may send another email. We're not suggesting this is the right approach for everyone in terms of deleting everything. But if you're drowning in your email inbox and you're reasonably certain that you're not deleting anything irreplaceable, then his uh, email bankruptcy approach might be something to consider. My first reaction to what he said was, ooh, that's so scary. But then on the other hand, it's hardly ever the case that the critical, the really critical information is coming by email and no other way. That's true. You know, even mm -hmm. though I do a lot of work with clients via email, um, it, it seems like if they're paying me, it's coming by check or it'll show up in PayPal or QuickBooks or something. Mm -hmm. And most so of the other stuff, money. no, I'm not deleting money. And most <laughs> of the other stuff, well, if I need it and I got rid of it, I can ask them to send it again. Mm -hmm. 99 times out of a hundred. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you think about it, if he had 45,000 emails and he had one lawsuit going on, he could pull all the emails related to that important thing and delete everything else. Right. Like if he did think that there was an issue where he needed to save everything related to this accident, this lawsuit, this grandmother, this fill in the blank, he could sort for that person, that topic. Put those and, in a save folder. Yeah. And save a slice and delete everything else. Yeah, but but he sort of he sort of implied in his comment that nothing really important was going to get lost. He didn't have any open issues that he knew about, and so he felt comfortable enough yeah. to kill it all. Now, the other thing Ernest's approach made me think of was we've talked a lot about bigger buckets. Mm -hmm. So this is a compromise between meticulously handling and processing every single email 
and throwing away the whole shebang, which we might suggest a big, bigger buckets approach to clearing a huge inbox backlog. So for example, you could make a save folder called emails from before the July 2021 purge and drag all of your messages over there and then mark them red. So they don't, none of them are lit up like they're unread. It'll be there if you need to search for a specific message later, but otherwise you could ignore the folder until you either decide to handle it later or you wanna purge it completely. So that's like grab everything in the inbox, move it in a folder, ignore it approach. Or you could also try a hybrid version of that, which is sort your email inbox by sender. So then you can slash your way through the low hanging fruit. Like here's all the newsletters I'm not reading. Here's all the Facebook notifications. Here's the sales offers. Here's the holiday greetings and so forth. And you can say everything that's coming from this company. I don't care about kill it. The 10 billion things that Walgreens sends every week. Right. Like all those people, all those companies that send out nonstop emails and you don't always catch them all. It's a way for you. If you've sorted it by sender, then you can just highlight everything from that sender and kill it all at once. And so it's a way for you to sort of bulk solution. Some of the deleting, you don't have to delete it all one at a time. You can delete in chunks and then once you've cleared the easy stuff, you can file what's left in a big bucket folder and move it over. So if it gives you more peace of mind, you can divide the big collection into folders by year or you can organize them by whatever scheme makes you happy. But the search function in email usually makes it easy to find what you need, no matter how deep it's buried. So we recommend keeping your system of saved emails as simple to navigate and uncomplicated to use as possible. And then once you've cleared your inbox in whatever radical or hybrid way you decided to use, take the opportunity to introduce a new maintenance routine to keep your inbox from getting out of control again. No point in doing that either the complete delete or some version of work to kill your inbox and then not, and then let it just start all over again. So yeah. this is the email version of once you clear out a space, it's not static and you have to, then launch maintenance routines to stay ahead of what is new incoming to keep it clean and keep it going okay. Yes. Okay, next comment comes from Auntie Gliz, also on YouTube. Gliz says, I've amassed way more things from Goodwill over the years than my house can comfortably accommodate, but it can feel wasteful to donate things back that I never used. What has helped me over that hurdle is the realization that since I never spend large amounts of money there, it's literally cheap entertainment for me. So it's long since water under the bridge. That being said, I now bring much less stuff home and the entertainment is the browsing much more than the buying. Isn't that a great example? That's a great shift in behavior and shift in understanding what she's doing. She really has said to us, yeah, I was doing this and it was cost me money and creating problems. And now I'm seeing it in a different light and I'm doing it in a different way and I can still be entertained and I don't have to come up with stuff. There's a sunk cost fallacy in the idea of shopping and buying stuff. And the sunk cost fallacy tricks us into assigning a value to things related to what we already spent on them. But that money is spent and we're not getting it back unless we want to put the time and the effort into reselling. We have to toss out the value that we've assigned to a thing based on what it costs and give each item a more realistic assessment of value based on how useful or attractive or meaningful the object is to us. 
And even in the case of reselling, your sunk cost is irrelevant because your stuff is only worth what you can get someone else to pay for it today, right now. The latest price someone got for this on eBay is a more accurate assessment of its value than your receipt from two or five or 10 years ago. And if you enjoy the entertainment of shopping, you can train yourself to enjoy the thrill of the hunt without actually making the kill, by which we mean taking the items to the cash register and whipping out the credit card to pay for them. Bravo to Aunt Glitz for learning this about herself and thereby saving yourself money and avoiding the accumulation of more stuff. Her term catch and release shopping is a perfect, it's a perfect name for put it in the cart, drive it around the store, walk away without buying. You can have the fun of shopping without spending the money. That was actually my term. Catch oh, and release shopping. Term? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, great. It was that's a good one. I like the verbiage there. Okay, let's go on. Um, our final comment today comes from Jimmy on YouTube. Jimmy says, my husband is in charge of the mail in the house because he is a shredaholic. <laughs> Not that he likes to shred things. He just feels the need to shred things that I would probably just throw away. To keep the shred pile from getting unruly, he keeps the shredder next to the sofa along with the shred me basket. He then uses commercial breaks to run a couple of things through the shredder or sort the day's mail. The trick to this is setup. He sets up an area where he spends a lot of time with the items he will need in order to, to perform this mindless activity. We really wanted to share this comment because it hits several recurring clutterfairy themes. And the first one being negotiation. It sounds as if Jimmy and her husband have had honest conversations about what's important to each of them as they share responsibility for their home. So honest and clear communication about your individual clutter thresholds your organizing styles and your particular concerns is a great foundation on which to build decluttering routines. And he clearly has a threshold about what he feels comfortable throwing away versus what he feels like needs shredding. And so he is a taken on the shredding task and B created a routine around making that happen. The next thing that this one covers is delegation. We ask for the support of other members of your household for subtasks of your big organizing project or specific decluttering jobs that match their interests and skills. Again, it bothers him, he's taken on the task. And if she kept the task and was not shredding as much as he liked and was throwing out stuff that he felt needed to be shredded, then she'd be doing the job, but he would be uncomfortable about it he would not feel like the shredding was being adequately addressed. And so it wouldn't be a good allocation of the project between the two of them because he clearly has more, uh, he's more risk averse around the paperwork than she is. The other comment here is that he created a supportive environment in which to do this work. He's taking the steps up front to set yourself up for success in your organizing efforts. And he's actually done that. He arranged his workspace to accommodate and facilitate these routines. And you can do the same. You wanna arrange your space to support the good habits you're trying to cultivate. Keep the tools you need convenient to the place where you'll do the work. Remove anything from the area that doesn't support the key functions you wanna carry out in the space. And make the space attractive and comfortable so you'll be eager to spend time there. He did, he did that by, he here's the chair where he watches television. He's got the shred box and the shredder right there. And he uses the commercial triggers to 
prompt him to go and shred a few more pieces of paper. And I have to say that that probably extends the life of the shredder because if you sit and try to shred nonstop for 30 minutes, you overheat the motor, you burn out, even the hundred dollar shredders are not designed for nonstop shredding all day long and they get burnt out and they overheat and it kills them. So the idea of doing two or three minute uh, shredding every 10 or 15 minutes, great way to extend the life. So he's really set himself up for accomplishing what he wants to do in the least disruptive manner possible. <laughs> and by setting up that space, they're supporting handling each day's mail. So Jimmy and her husband have the basis for a successful daily maintenance routine here. They worked it out. It's getting processed every day and he's staying ahead of his shredding, which is a perfect maintenance routine and, and, and the best that you can hope for, frankly. Well done, Jimmy and Jimmy's husband. Yay, right? <laughs> and thank you to all of our viewers and listeners who keep sharing their comments. We will be back next week with our regularly scheduled show. One of our most popular episodes explored setting priorities for your organizing projects. In that episode, we compared prioritizing projects to a juggling act. But with a little training and some practice, we think that decluttering can be as elegant as a dance. We've gotten lots of requests for more ideas on this topic, so we hope you'll join us next week, Tuesday, July 13th, at noon U.S. Central Time, live in Zoom and streaming on Facebook, as we offer principles for setting organizing priorities to help you choreograph your work on a variety of spaces and projects. We're calling next week's show Choreography for Clutter, More Tools for Setting Project Priorities. If you're watching this on YouTube, we'd love for you to join us live. To get notifications about upcoming events, we invite you to join the meetup group by visiting cfhou.com slash meetup. You can also follow us on Facebook by going to cfhou.com slash Facebook or subscribe to our mailing list by visiting cfhou.com slash subscribe. We love to hear from you, so please send us your questions and topic suggestions in the YouTube comments on Facebook or anywhere you find us. And you can always reach us through our website at clutterfairhouston.com. Thanks for checking in with us today and being patient while we take a little bit of time off. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.